Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present William Hartung, Senior Research Fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, who considers the extreme danger in enforcing a no-fly zone over Ukraine and the urgent need for a viable war exit strategy. Nathan Taft of the group Stand.Earth, who reflects on how the devastating war in Ukraine has focused attention on the world's harmful addiction to fossil fuels and the need to rapidly develop renewable energy sources. And Lise Van Susteren, co-founder of the group Climate Psychiatry Alliance, who discusses the need to equip therapists to address individuals with climate anxiety who seek help from mental health professionals. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. In a move that could signal a thaw in relations between Venezuela and the Biden administration, the government of Nicolas Maduro released two U.S. prisoners as Russia's invasion of Ukraine upended geopolitical alliances and oil politics. The Washington Post reports that eight U.S. citizens remain in Venezuela's prisons, including five Citgo executives who were arrested in 2017, accused of money laundering and embezzlement. The Trump administration broke off relations with Caracas in 2019 and imposed oil sanctions as it sought to install opposition leader Juan Guaido as president. Now the Maduro government has agreed to return to talks in Mexico with opposition parties. Maduro maintains close ties with Russia, even as talks with the Biden administration continue. While opponents of Venezuela's socialist government are against loosening sanctions, New York Congressman Gregory Meeks supports negotiations, asserting that Trump-era oil sanctions only deepened the suffering in Venezuela and failed to weaken Maduro's grip on power. Lifting sanctions on Venezuelan oil is seen as a way to put downward pressure on world oil prices. A rich deposit of lithium sits in northwestern Nevada's Montana Mountains, valued for being a critical component in high-powered batteries that run electric vehicles. Now a Canadian mining company, Lithium Americas, plans to build a mine and processing plant at nearby Thacker Pass, Nevada. But these plans have raised concerns among ranchers, farmers, Native Americans, and environmentalists. These groups worry the lithium mine would threaten the local water supply. Native Americans consider the area a sacred site and say they weren't consulted about the proposed mine. Green activists want to preserve the region's habitat to protect the endangered sage-grouse and wildlife migration routes. The lithium mining dispute received national attention as President Joe Biden set up a goal to have half of all vehicles sold in the U.S. to be electric-powered. But The Economist observes that demand for more supplies of cobalt, copper, and lithium to power the green economy could set off new environmentally damaging mining booms. According to the International Energy Agency, global demand for lithium will surge 40-fold over the next 20 years. 
Intuit, the maker of TurboTax software, is facing a wave of mass arbitration cases from consumers complaining they had to pay to file taxes using the company's product. A class action suit was filed in 2019 by consumers seeking a refund. According to ProPublica, consumers had the option to file taxes for free, but instead many were unknowingly diverted to software requiring customers to pay to file their taxes. An alternative product, offered in partnership with the Internal Revenue Service, allows customers to file taxes without charge. Intuit denies any wrongdoing and is fighting all legal claims. An investigation by a Treasury Department inspector general found that in 2019 alone, 14 million tax filers paid for tax preparation software from TurboTax and other firms, which they could have received for free. The fees totaled about $1 billion in revenue for the software industry. In 2020, 100,000 consumers had sought individual arbitration against Intuit that could cost the company more than $175 million in fees alone. Meanwhile, the Federal Trade Commission and a set of at least five state attorneys generals are investigating Intuit. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. In recent days, Russia's attack on Ukraine has intensified with bombing and missile strikes on major cities and a military base in the west of the country, just 12 miles from the Polish border. Moscow charged that the base stored military equipment destined for Ukrainian forces and declared western supply lines into Ukraine were legitimate targets. More than 3 million Ukrainians have fled their war-ravaged country, seeking refuge in neighboring nations. As the carnage in Ukraine continues unabated, both Democrats and Republicans have joined Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky in calling for the U.S. and NATO to enforce a no-fly zone over Ukraine. President Biden has been clear that while the U.S. will defend every inch of NATO territory, he won't send soldiers or pilots into Ukraine that could lead to a broader, more deadly conflict. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres also opposes a no-fly zone, commenting that such a move risks escalation that could trigger a global conflict. Your reporter spoke with William Hartung, senior research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, who considers the extreme danger in enforcing a no-fly zone over Ukraine and the urgent need for a viable exit strategy from the war. I think a lot of people support a no-fly zone uh, simply because they want to see an end to the killing. Uh, and I think that's understandable. You know, we've seen these horrific pictures daily, hourly, uh, you know, whenever essentially people want to look at media, they can they can see what's happening to Ukraine. But the problem is a no-fly zone is, is not some sort of rule that Russia would have to abide by. It's, it's an act of war uh, because you would be uh, saying they're going to shoot down Russian planes over certain parts of Ukraine. Uh, it might lead to uh, bombing Russian anti-aircraft systems, including possibly ones based in Russia. So there's no kind of 
risk-free version of a no-fly zone. And, and they, you know, the, the advocates have said, well, it'll just protect this humanitarian corridor. It's not going to be to cover all of Ukraine. But even in that version, you're still committed to shooting down Russian planes. And so you still have that possibility of direct combat, uh, which can escalate. As suggested, you don't want a, a shooting war between nuclear-armed powers because you never know where it's going to end. Right. So I think we're still going to hear calls for no-fly zone. I think President Zelensky is still calling for it. He's supposed to address the Congress and may raise this issue. There's some members of Congress hearing from their constituents on this. But so far, the Biden administration has held firm, basically saying, uh, you know, this is an act of war and it's, it's, it's further than we're willing to go uh, in this situation. Even Marco Rubio um, said, you know, this is this could start World War III. Um, he, he may come to be a, an exception in the Republican camp, but so far that's, there doesn't seem to be a strong congressional um, push for this either. So uh, hopefully it won't come to that, but I think it's going to be an ongoing debate. There are a lot of people hopeful that negotiations of some sort can end this conflict and the bloodshed. And there have been talks between Russia and Ukrainian representatives and I'm wondering, as you look at what's going on with these talks, is there a viable option for an exit strategy for Russia to leave this conflict and save face? Because Vladimir Putin does not want to leave Ukraine as a loser. And as there was in the Cuban Missile Crisis, there needs to be some kind of win-win situation for those negotiating here. Well, sort of the parameters of what seem to be under discussion are uh, neutrality for Ukraine, no NATO membership, Russia continues to control Crimea, and there's some sort of either autonomy or independence for the territories in the Donbass. And then also Putin has introduced this notion of denazification. His view is that somehow the whole regime is, is um, you know, imbued with Nazism. In fact, there are militias and so forth, there's, there's elements within Ukraine, but it's not not the government. I mean, I think Putin is, is well overstating that to, to justify the invasion. But nonetheless, so, so if, if you're the Ukrainian government, you have to figure out which of those demands you can live with. Um, and I think particularly difficult will be what happens to the, the states in the Donbass. You know, there's different options from independence to going back to the Minsk agreements where there would have been a demilitarization of the area, uh, autonomy relative to the central government. They weren't able to, to pull that off before the invasion. So the question is, can they, after the fact, do that? And how would Ukraine feel about that, given that Russia has now invaded their country? So, um, you know, there's elements that would have to come into play. I think the United States could play a constructive role. So far, I think that Biden administration has been pretty hands-off on this stage of the talks. Um, I think it should be clear that the sanctions will be lifted if Russia leaves, and they're not some sort of, you know, eternal punishment, because if, if they're not going to be lifted, then there's no leverage from having them. So it's a, it's a difficult moment, but, but I think, you know, to some degree, the um, it's up to the government of Ukraine and the people of Ukraine what kind of deal they're willing to accept. Uh, but there's got to be some element where 
uh, Putin can walk away and say he accomplished something for all this uh, blood and treasure that he's thrown into this war. That was William Hartung, Senior Research Fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Find a link to his recent article titled Biden is Right to Rule Out a No-Fly Zone in Ukraine and Related Commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. As the war in Ukraine rages on, killing thousands, President Biden signed an executive order banning the importation of Russian oil, liquefied natural gas, and coal to the United States, an action the White House says is designed to deprive Russia's President Vladimir Putin the economic resources he uses to continue his military campaign. European Union states are set to adopt new sanctions against Russian oil companies, but will not ban the purchase of the nation's fossil fuels. The sanctions targeting Russian oil sent the price of crude skyrocketing on world markets. Every $10 increase in the price of a barrel of oil adds about 24 cents to the cost of each gallon of gasoline. The price of gas in the U.S. is now nearing, or may exceed, previous inflation-adjusted highs last reached in 2008. With consumers facing near-record high gas prices, many U.S. politicians are calling for increased production of American fossil fuels that could put downward pressure on world oil prices. But more than 200 groups are calling on President Biden to resist short-sighted domestic fossil fuel policies that will exacerbate climate change and instead invoke the Defense Production Act for Renewable Energy Sources. Your reporter spoke with Nathan Taft, senior digital campaigner with the group Stand.Earth, who reflects on how the war in Ukraine is focusing attention on the world's harmful addiction to fossil fuels and the need to rapidly develop renewable energy sources. Essentially, we were calling on Biden to invoke the Defense Production Act, which actually dates back all the way to the Korean War, where the federal government can use their power to move private industry to create materials necessary to the national defense. And it's been used for for lots of different things, but most recently, Trump used it to produce ventilators during the first COVID wave, and then Biden has already used it twice, first to produce masks, and then also to actually produce lengths of fire hose during the fire season here in California, where I live. And it's been used for other purposes before. So what we're calling on Biden is, look, this crisis, this mess, is the root is fossil fuels. Putin and Russia, 60% of their exports are fossil fuels. 40% of their revenues are from fossil fuels. And we are stuck with high energy prices, all of this circling back to fossil fuels. And so we need to move rapidly away from them not just because of the climate crisis and the harm they're causing to our communities, but because they're empowering tin pot dictators like Putin all around the world. Nathan, in your view, and there have been charges, of course, that big oil is taking advantage of the war in Ukraine, not only to push up prices, but to ramp up U.S. production of fossil fuels and deregulate drilling and all other aspects of the fossil fuel production chain here in the U.S., a comment on, on that, if you would. Yeah. I mean, if, you, if you've been following the news coverage closely enough, even before the invasion started, uh, the American Petroleum Institute, the oil lobby, was calling for more drilling, for ramping up drilling more, doing more of this. And 
they want to expand export facilities, build new infrastructure, and there's no regard for the communities that will be harmed for that, for the damage that will be done to the climate. And what's wild is that ramping up production, we're already the biggest producer of gas in the world. And doing more of this won't impact gas prices or oil prices for more than a year, or it could even be longer than that. You can't just flip a switch. And so to be calling for drilling more and doing this, it's really, it's short-sighted and quite frankly, it's profiteering. They want to use this crisis. And as the price goes up, they have the, the highest level of revenues, big oil that is, than they've had in the past decade. So it's, it's really just self-serving on their part and really frustrating to see we haven't learned that we need to get out of this cycle and move towards renewables. You can't put an embargo on the sun or the wind. Right. There are many people who look at the situation now with this crisis in Ukraine and the price of oil skyrocketing and say that solar panels and uh, wind turbines are not going to take the place of the energy needed in the coming weeks. How do you respond to the idea that the the Defense Protection Act that you're asking to be invoked here to ramp up the funding of uh, producing renewable energy, it's a more of a long-term project than something that can address the energy crisis right now? So I think there's there's two points to go over there, right? And the first is we need to help our allies in Europe. Our allies in Europe, 40% of the gas they use to heat their homes comes from Russia. And they absolutely need relief and help to get out from under the thumb of Putin. And so one of the things that the Defense Production Act could do, and this was raised by Bill McKibben, is that if it was used to ramp up the production of these things called heat pumps, which is basically a way to replace furnaces with, with things that can warm your home and heat your home, but can use electricity. And so ramping up those and shipping them to Europe could have a very immediate impact for our allies who are really at Putin's mercy right now because of where their energy supply is coming from. So that's the first point, and that's the immediate point there. As far as what it can do domestically, uh, an investment in electric vehicles charging infrastructure, and also just public infrastructure and public transit, things that require us to drive less, all of these things are going to help insulate us from future shocks and help us not just be stuck back here in five years. Because the truth is, we've had a chance to deal with this ever since the oil embargo in 1973. And we keep choosing to drill more, open the tap more. And it doesn't, it doesn't help in the short term. And then we just get stuck with more of this stuff. And right now, we, we have to take urgent action on climate. So there's quite literally never been a more important time to move away from using this and prevent the next crisis. That was Nathan Taft, senior digital campaigner with the group Stand.Earth. Learn more about the campaign to invoke the Defense Production Act to develop renewable energy sources by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org.
As the world watches in horror the death and destruction that followed Russia's invasion of Ukraine, climate concerns have also come to the fore. Not just concerns about Putin's implicit threat to use nuclear weapons, but the role that fossil fuels, especially natural gas, more accurately called methane, have played in giving Russia so much influence in Europe's energy sector. A phenomenon called climate anxiety, or climate grief, has come out of the closet as more people around the world, especially but not exclusively young people, attempt to come to grips with what the climate crisis means for them personally in their own lives. Dr. Lise Van Susteren is a practicing psychiatrist in Washington, D.C., who specializes in forensic psychiatry, often serving as an expert witness in court cases. She's co-founder of a group called the Climate Psychiatry Alliance and serves on the board of Physicians for Social Responsibility. In 2011, Van Susteren co-authored the book The Psychological Effects of Global Warming on the U.S., Why the U.S. Mental Health System is Not Prepared. Between the Lines Melinda Tuhu spoke with Dr. Van Susteren, who discusses the need to equip therapists to address the climate grief and anger of individuals who come to them for help, as well as the broader political implications. I could go to a dinner party and shut it down in minutes, uh, and, and would, uh, when I would bring up climate issues. People froze and had nothing to say. Now that's changed, but uh, I did not have patience until uh, a few years ago when people started calling me looking for help. And that's when, as a joint project of the two groups that I co-founded, we initiated what is now um, what I dubbed the Climate Aware Therapist Directory. It was not dubbed, that's the official name. And it was so that people who were suffering from these very powerful uh, feelings about climate uh, could get some help because many of the people calling me would say when I would suggest they get help locally, this is before we were doing a remote uh, telepsychiatry uh, um, uh, during the pandemic. And they would say that they'll go to a therapist and the therapist would suggest that they were really worried about, oh, some personal issue, work-related family or some unresolved uh, childhood experience and would um, elbow aside the concern about climate. We uh, determined that we would put a directory together and work to train the members so that they could adequately respond to uh, people who are looking for help and indeed speak about the issue and perhaps get colleagues on board and do other pro-social activities around climate. And that's really another thing that I'd like to underscore is how important it is to be with a group. Because if you really want a final product that works, uh, I think the collective intelligence of the various differences among us uh, is what creates a really good a product in the end. There's that saying, if you want to go uh, uh, fast to go alone, if you want to go far, go with others. And I have certainly found that to be the case. Lisa Van Susteren, I remember reading an article where you were talking about being a therapist for young people around climate issues. Do you see a lot of young people with climate grief or climate rage? While I don't see a lot of young people specifically for therapy, I am the expert witness in a number of cases of young people suing their governments. I am the expert witness in the psychological damages to the 21 plaintiffs 
uh, in the Juliana case. Some of you may remember the Juliana case and it may be coming up again uh, against the federal government for inaction on climate. So I did in my past experiences as a psychological profiler, what I did was the psychological evaluations of the young people and heard firsthand and, you know, was able to find better because that's the work that I'm uh, trained uh, and experienced at doing of the nature of their emotional response to what scientists are telling us and what the science shows awaits us. And uh, it was a powerful experience. I'll never be the same. Uh, it was a, a searing experience for me to find just the right words, not to overstate, but to reasonably and memorably describe the struggle and suffering of children, young people faced with what's coming. You know, when you talk about what you foresee, sometimes it can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the last thing I want to do is have kids hear some of my fears uh, and have them get in the way of their own resilience. And I'm also the expert witness in another case held v. Montana, where young people are suing the government of Montana on constitutional grounds as well. And a new case, uh, I am the expert witness in a case of uh, young people who have brought um, their petition before, we hope that it will be accepted by the European Court of Human Rights. So those are the uh, legal uh, issues that I'm involved in. Uh, forensic, that's where the, the forensic part comes in handy. You know, I always think about Greta Thunberg, who got so depressed about the climate crisis and that her family was just carrying on like nothing was wrong, that she stopped eating and permanently stunted her growth. Then, of course, she became active and really changed the world. How important do you think it is for people to recognize and deal with their climate anxiety or grief or anger? Or might it be better to just power through it, which seems like what a lot of climate activists try to do? We can be deeply anxious about an issue and so frightened by it that we tend to avoid it. But uh, once we begin to have the resolve uh, or the help in tackling that problem, then our anxiety turns into action. And that's really what we want to do is go from being aware of the problem, and this is a messaging tip, say it like it is when we talk to people, but then offer immediate actions that they can take to reduce their anxiety. That was Dr. Lise Van Susteren, co-founder of the Climate Psychiatry Alliance. Learn more about the group's work and resources available by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. 
There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WPKN in Bridgeport, Connecticut, WOZO in Knoxville, Tennessee, WXDR in New Orleans, Louisiana, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We're very excited to announce that Between the Lines is celebrating 30 years on the air with an online panel discussion titled The Crisis in U.S. Journalism and the Future of Independent Media and Democracy, which will take place Thursday, March 24th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. The virtual event features Greg Pallast, Nina Turner, Bill Fletcher Jr., Adrian Hawk, and moderated by Victor Picard. Register for this two-hour special online program by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. That's btlonline.org.